Hello, and welcome to another episode of Revolutionary Dispatches, with me, Chris Wright. And me, David Bryan. How's everyone doing this week? It's been an annoyingly quiet week. Yes. Relatively speaking. Yes. There's not one sort of massive story that's overshadowing things, which is a change of pace for us. Yeah. I mean, relatively speaking, we've, uh, it's, been, it's been very busy just recently. Now we've gone back to just normal heavy news weeks. Yeah. yeah. Week is a long time in politics. Yeah, a, very, a very long time. Five minutes is quite a while these days. <laughs> so it'll be all right. It'll be all right. I, I'm not <laughs> sure it will. I'm really not sure it will. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. But that being said, a fair amount to talk about this week. Anyway. Yes, indeed. So we have major advances in civil rights in Germany and in Northern Ireland, arguably. Yes. Uh, yeah. We've got we've got some Trump news coming up. Oh yes, yes. As always, good fun. Build that wall. Uh, some Lib Dem shenanigans, but we're going to kick off, I think, with a lovely rebellion. Not in the Star Wars mould, but in the Chuka Amuna mould, which is somewhat yes. less dynamic. <laughs> He's not exactly Han Solo, although I bet he'd love to be called it. <laughs> I, can, I can see that. Call me Han. Call me Han, darling. No, I'm not calling you Han. <laughs> no. Trouble is, everyone likes Han. No one likes Chuka Amuna. Well, presumably in this particular piece of bizarre surrealist roleplay, Chuka Amuna's wife likes him a bit. Oh, that's true. I mean, I hope so. <laughs> Otherwise, this entire conversation has taken on a far more sinister turn. Call me on! It's a bit worrying. It's a bit worrying. If Chaka Ramon is Han, who's Luke then? Tristan Probably Hunt? Corbin. No, Corbin's obviously Obi-Wan, isn't he? But... Well, no, I mean, if it depends. If you're doing it from the perspective that Chuka Amuna wants to be called Han Solo, then he would see himself as the good guy, presumably. At which point, mm. you're talking about New Labour, in which case I think Tristram Hunt is Luke, and Tony Blair's Obi-Wan Kenobi. Oh, yeah, 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 it definitely is. Which makes Corbin Vader. On the other hand, if you were to flip it, then who knows, it could get rather complicated. <laughs> I think we should we should drive out of this particular cul-de-sac with yeah, yes, yes, of extreme haste <laughs> before we get lost in a discussion of which political figures are <laughs> which Star Wars characters, we'll which I've done before edit. with Adam, and it took a while. <laughs> I don't think you have to start with the basis of Corbin is Obi-Wan, though, because they are... They're just the same. Just look at them. Yeah, I think any reasonable comparison that that does have to be made. <laughs> yeah, out of the cul-de-sac. Out of the cul-de-sac. Out of the cul-de-sac. So the news this week is that Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the Labour Party, in case you've been living under a rock, uh, has sacked uh, three shadow ministers from his cabinet, and a fourth has resigned over uh, the slight spat over Chuka Muna's amendment to the Queen's speech uh, regarding Brexit. Uh, specifically single market access. Hmm. The Labour whip was to abstain on the amendment and 49 Labour MPs voted for it. Which included, as I say, four shadow ministers. So, uh, the four are Ruth Cadbury, Andy Slaughter, Catherine West and Daniel Zeichner. Zeichner was the one who resigned and then the other three were sat. It's quite a big rebellion. Um, there was another rebellion over the original triggering of Article 50, which was 52, which is sort of on the same order. Hmm. But it, it, it's a fair, a fair chunk of the PLP that's gone yes. against Corbyn on this. It's not just the... So the section of the PLP, which is what you might call Blairite, properly Blairite, is actually relatively small. There's only 20 or 30 of them. So this rebellion has managed... It's not just them having a go at the leader. They've managed to get some of the, the soft-left Miliband types to come on side with it as well. Some of the more pro-European ones. And a lot of the more Brownite, you might say, style MPs actually uh, followed the whip and, and, and didn't vote for this amendment. People like Tom Watson and Yvette Cooper because they have issues with free movement and immigration uh, in the same kind of way yeah, that yeah. Gordon Brown was always more sceptical of European integration than Blair was. Yeah, because they're, they're types who are a bit less less straight down the line Blairite, new Labour-y, and they're more like the the right of the old Labour Party. So yeah, what do you think about this uh, this whole business then? You said earlier that uh, when you were looking into it, it got you quite worked up, so why don't you... You'd lead with some, yeah, yeah. some irate I, comments. Yeah, I, I've managed to calm down a certain amount now. It's, it's all right. But I'm glad to hear it. After the um, after the election result, in which Corbyn did much better than anyone expected, beat Tony Blair's result in 2005, quite a lot of the people who'd been um, sceptical of his leadership within Labour came out and said, OK, fair enough, we were wrong. Um, and they, they stood by their mistake that they'd made, honestly. Um, and they also didn't spend the entire election campaign sniping at him they kind of they actually gave him the chance to run an election campaign properly um so i uh, that would be owen smith types like that and 
I, I think they deserve quite a lot of credit for that because it shows that they weren't just that, that that they were genuine the whole time, even when they were being skeptical about Corbyn. They were doing it out of a real sense of they they thought that it was a mistake, but they didn't actually bear Corbyn any ill will. Um, and I think that by the same token, anyone who now hasn't done that, who hasn't backtracked on it, even after the recent election, deserves just as much scorn as those people get praise. So you would include Chukaramuna in that? I would very much include Chukaramuna in that. <laughs> yeah. I have nothing but scorn for Chukaramuna in general anyway. But um... Yes, I, um, I remember on the election night, uh, just after seeing um, uh, Owen Smith give his uh, interview about what he thought about the election results, in which he said, because Owen Smith challenged uh, Corbyn for the leadership in the coup that happened about a year ago now. Um, but he said, if we could bottle and drink what Corbyn's got, then we should all do that. Drink the Kool-Aid. Which I think, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I thought, good on him, good on Owen Smith. And then immediately after it, Chuck Aramuna had essentially the same interview where he's asked the same questions. And he was a lot more non-committal about it. It was all about how, oh, well, this is actually the Labour Party has made this victory and it's not all down to Corbyn and whatever. Which I don't, I thought, I, it, it wasn't all down to Corbyn, you know, huge oh, God, numbers yeah, of, exactly of, right. of, of Labour uh, activists and Momentum in particular activists yeah, yeah, yeah. came out and delivered this result. But it was, you know, significantly down to the Corbyn effect, I think, that so many young people and so many first time voters came out and supported the Labour Party, which I don't think would have happened under Owen Smith. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not. I'm not saying that it's actually what the content of what he's saying isn't wrong. It's the fact that he sort of changed the subject and diverted into that when he was asked about, weren't you wrong about Corbyn because you said that he was going to destroy the party? Yeah. I think it, it he... comes down to the difference between people like Owen Smith, who are soft left, they are, um, you know, fairly sympathetic to a lot of what at least was in the Labour manifesto in 2017, possibly not some of Corbyn and John McDonald's private views, which are further left but certainly the the hmm. the platform that labor stood on in 2017 election uh, people like owen smith are generally quite sympathetic to but they just didn't think corbyn they just didn't think uh the labor party could necessarily win on that platform and they didn't think that corbyn was the right person to lead now they were wrong but i think people like that have accepted they were wrong because actually they'd quite like to deliver a social democratic if not an actually socialist mm-hmm. government in the united kingdom People like Chuka Ramuna are neoliberal true believers. They are in the Blairite mould. They disagree with even social democracy, let alone socialism. You know, people, Tony Blair said that he would rather lose an election than win one on a left-wing manifesto. And I think Chuka Ramuna mm. is the same. Yeah. Um, so the Labour Party's always been a broad church. That's a term that people often use to describe the Labour Party, a broad church. And it's been that since it started. People who were moderately social democratic all the way over to uh, Keir Hardy, Labour's first MP, was a Marxist. Um, but that's not what Blairism was. That wasn't just the more centrist part of the Labour Party that's always been there coming into the leadership role. That was a new thing that isn't normally part of the Labour Party, attaching itself to the Labour Party and then taking it over and trying to change the the fundamentals of the party. Ironically, in the and, way that people like Blair and, and, and earlier with Kinnock claimed that the Trotskys were trying to do, who actually had kind yes, of exactly. more involved with the Labour Party than any kind of neoliberal... It doesn't necessarily have to be Trotskyists who are like fourth international types and whatever, mm. but people as left-wing as that have been part of the Labour Party from the very beginning. They were part of what founded it. People like Tony Blair weren't. They did enter the party. Yeah. So... I'm still willing to not have enormous amounts of recriminations here over this for those like non-Blairite MPs who did go along with this, because I think that they still they've probably only done this for the pro-European thing because they're just so focused on the EU. They really don't want to leave the EU um, and, and they've spotted a chance to vote against what they see as a hard Brexit consensus and whatever. They haven't done it just out of we want to carry on with this Blairite stick that we still haven't given up on. But I think some of them who voted for this have still, I'm still willing to forgive them. <laughs> but Chukaramuna and, and his kind of the group that gather around him are, you think, deliberately doing this as a way of trying to disrupt Corbyn's leadership, even after they kind of back down after the election. They're still trying to outwork. I think given the nature of what Corbyn's trying to do with the party, it would be, and, and the nature of how power works. So if there's a major opposition party, 
but you're an extreme you're in a position of extreme power be it corporate power or whatever it would be weird if they didn't start trying to put their influence into one of the two main parties so it would be weird if there weren't parts of the Labour Party that were essentially trying to serve that kind of power. And because Jeremy Corbyn's whole thing is to try and challenge that, it would be odd if sections of the Labour Party didn't try and constantly unseat him, even when it's unreasonable. So this is a good sign, actually, I think, ultimately. (laughs) Shows Corbyn's on the right track. Yeah, that's a a fair point. Uh, That's a fair point. I also, for my money, I think, on the particular issue of single market membership and the customs union, I think, whilst I would perfectly be in favour of the UK remaining within the single market, it isn't feasible to deliver what people want out of Brexit with continued single market and customs union membership. Yeah, I think that um, the current policy when it comes to the EU and to what kind of Brexit we want that's coming out of the Labour leadership at the moment is pretty much as pro-EU as you can be whilst respecting the referendum result in my opinion you can they want to leave the single market but still have access to it and what they call the exact same benefits of the single market so they want to put all of the single market legislate uh, like environmental and workers rights legislation in place and have full access to the single market but still be still have our institutions be politically separate from it i think that's about as pro-european as you can be without in some sense going against the referendum result I guess my concern is that I don't know if that's possible because without the European yes, yeah, Court yeah. of Justice to administer our trade relations as the ultimate arbiter if in a case of conflict or tension, I, I don't see how we can have single market access unless we accede to the ECJ's oversight. But if we do that, hmm. then all of the people that voted for Brexit for sovereignty reasons... And there aren't millions of them, but there are probably in enough that they make up, you know, a percentage that would have tipped the referendum one way or the other, put it like that. Those people are going to be very, very upset because if the ECJ, which is a non-British court, has jurisdiction over our trade policy, well, that's not sovereignty. That's not independence. Now, I, you can't really have full sovereign independence in a globalised capitalist market. But that's not how they won't see it that way. They will want to pull out of the ECJ. And the Tory party is expressly committed to pulling out of the ECJ. And I don't think that the kind of Brexit that Labour supports is actually technically possible. Because I just mm-hmm. don't think the European... The, 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 the EU27 will accept a UK which still has single market access unless they unless we also accept ECJ oversight. Yeah, that's entirely possible. And there's a problem whereby, um, because we don't have a formal written constitution in the UK, there's no, there's no, we have parliamentary sovereignty and no constitution that has a special, much more difficult mechanism for being changed compared to the rest of our law. Mm. So if a government can get something through parliament to change a law, they have no ultimate restriction on things that they can do. When we were part of the EU, there was at the very least the EU treaties. And then, so there was some section of law which had legal force in Britain, which a government with a majority in parliament couldn't change whenever they want. And we won't have that when we leave the EU, because that was the advantage of having the European um, Court of Human Rights over some British Bill of Rights, which is what the Conservatives wanted. Well, the European Court of Human Rights isn't necessary. We aren't necessarily going to pull out of the European Court of Human Rights just because we leave the EU. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the Tories true. want yeah. to, or at least large parts of the Tory party want to, but that will be a lot more difficult than pulling out of hmm. the EU. And I don't know if they'll be able to get through Parliament, even if they had a majority, especially not without one. Yeah, but yeah. We'll see. With the moderate Tories, and particularly with that, um, the fact that the reason why the Tories, even though they don't have a majority, are even so close to having a majority as they are, is because of that, um, the gains they made in Scotland. Mm. And those will be in very pro-EU areas, so that the Parliamentary Conservative Party has a strong pro-European cabal still within it. Yes. And Ken Clark's still there. And Ken Clark's still there, yes. 
So that's another one. So 13 Scots and Ken Clark possibly may save Britain. Sounds like a folk band. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I really want that on a t-shirt now. 13 Scots and Ken Clark. It'd have to be Kenneth Clark, I think, for the full folk band appeal. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right then, well, moving on from... uh, Jeremy Corbyn's difficulties keeping his backbench in line, irony of ironies, look to the Lib Dem leadership election, or as the case may be, not election, because mm. as some of you may know, uh, a certain gentleman by the name of Tim Farron was previously leader of the Liberal Democrat Party, uh, after their kind of disappointing performance at the 2017 general election, he resigned. Um, he's still, still there as a caretaker at the moment. The campaign to succeed him presses on, and at the moment there's only one person running. Hmm. And he's a, uh, a a party grandee. Yeah. He's well known, popular in the party, and whatever. His name is Sir Vince Cable. Um, it was thought that he might face opposition from either Ed Davey, the former energy minister, or Joe Swinson. Um, but Joe Swinson has kind of pulled out of the leadership race before really entering it in a way. Sort of possibly in a kind of semi-coordinated move. There have been rumours that there might have been a, a, a little deal with, with, with Vince. Maybe not. That's kind mm. of just sort of floating around at the moment. That's what's most of it down to. But the um, main point is that she's basically taken on the deputy leader role. Uh, and at the moment Vince Cable is the only person in the running, given that Norman Lamb has already um, pulled out as well, who Tim mm. uh, Farron ran against last time. So, yeah, it basically would like it's going to be Vince Cable or Vince Cable. Um, well, this is a problem the Lib Dems have these days. This isn't this isn't the mid-2000s when they had 50-something MPs. They've only got, what is it at the moment? 12. Yeah, so they don't have that many people to choose from. Yeah. Um, and when one of them is a former leader who people quite like, like Vince Cable, it seems like an obvious choice. Well, not former leader. Uh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so Vince was uh, was business secretary during the coalition government of the Tories between 2010 mm. and 2015. Um, he is a former member of the SDP before the merger between the SDP and the Tories. Uh, he's considered to be on the left of the Liberal Democrats. He's also 74. Now, both of those things have kind of been highlighted as potential problems with his leadership. The age thing is, I think, a bit unfair, given that Jeremy Corbyn is getting third rapidly. You know, older politicians aren't, aren't necessarily as out of vogue as they were a few years ago when you had Clegg, Cameron, Blair, all the other people. But there have been concerns raised over there, given that he would be 79 this partner does stagger on until 2026. The other point about his being on the left of the party is a bit of a concern for the Lib Dems because basically because of Labour's quite good result at the last election, most of the Labour Lib Dem marginal seats are no longer marginal and the Labour Party have pretty much quite significantly increased their majorities in those seats. So most of the marginal seats the Lib Dems could look to gain in the next election are with the Tories and is necessarily a left-wing leader who was known for being a bit, although the member of the coalition government a bit unhappy with a lot of things he did, is that necessarily the best way to win over voters in those kind of seats? So on the age thing, I I tend to agree with you that I think that it's a bit unfair to... Um, to uh, Bring that into it too much. I don't think it um, it really affects people unless you're sort of like ninety, a hundred, one hundred and ten years old when you're you're extremely elderly for a politician. Um, then it could I could see why that might be a problem. At, at the other end as well, I don't think that it's um, particularly a problem if politicians are unusually lo- uh, uh, unusually young. No. If they were ten years old, then there'd be a problem. But if they're you know twenty one, I don't see why that's why, why that should really come into it. In the same way, if they're in their late 70s, I don't think they, sh- they should come into it either. I think it's less of a problem than it used to be. I think 10 years ago, like, movement should be 
mm. reason that we have encountered this like that. Quite a large part of that is essentially because of his age, and he was only like 64 at the time. Um, mm. Now Vincent's 74, and he's looking like he's going to walk it. So yeah. I think it's well, I, I suppose it's, it also depends on the individual, because the, the only thing that could really be a problem is health concerns. And that very much depends on the individual. Some people are, you know, still still very healthy, or, or way up into their 80s, 90s and whatever. Um, uh, whereas some people would probably be, um, they, they would struggle even in their 60s. Um, so if Vince thinks in his own mind that he's up to it, then I, I don't see any problem. What do you think about the man himself, then, in terms of his politics? I tend to quite like him. He's the kind of Lib Dem I like. It's because of what they did in the coalition government, I sort of agree with the British people that they should have been quite hard done by in the last couple of um, elections. But it is nice to have Lib Dems around, I think. I think it's a good sign. It's, it's something good about Britain that we have a significant third party. And what they do most of the time is vaguely centre-left and then um, and then press for civil liberties concerns. It's, it's good to have them about sometimes. And Vince Cable is the kind of Lib Dem who does that a lot. It's also going to be quite useful in this upcoming parliament because it means that on issues where the Tories want to tack to the left slightly and they're going to lose the DUP support, they can appeal to the Lib Dems instead. And the Lib Dems mm. have enough MPs to bring votes on those kinds of issues, for example, the, um, the promise bill at the Queen's Speech about domestic uh, violence, that the Lib Dems have enough votes to bring those kinds of issues over the line, and w- which gives Labour a bit more flexibility in kind of really, really hammering home uh, like left-wing amendments. So mm-hmm. Labour, I'm taking the domestic violence bill, or the proposed domestic violence bill as my example, because I don't really know the details, but I do know that a lot of uh, female MPs in the kind of um, women's rights caucus which exists in Parliament is actually quite well organised. They have a kind of party WhatsApp group and uh, mm. feminists of all parties kind of coordinate that way. Um, that caucus is displeased with the extent of the measures that have been proposed. So having the Lib Dems allows the Tories to tack a little left, Lib Dems can then get them over the line and then Labour can bombard the bill with left-wing amendments to bring it further, you know, make it better, a better bill. And then if they don't manage it, they can all abstain and say it's not good enough, but the Lib Dems can still get it over the line to at least get some small improvement. It's quite an interesting way that uh, we can play Parliament tactically when we have small parties that, that can side with either of the larger ones. Hmm. And you, this is a sort of a taster of what things could be more like if we had a more proportional system. Yeah. Discussion. Yeah. And and more directly reflecting the views of the British people, which is significantly left to the two main, of the two main parties on almost every issue. <clears throat> Vince Cable's actually more... Um, because he was part of the coalition government, this has sort of been buried a little bit, but he's actually relatively anti-austerity. Yes. Well, in his... Certainly in his own he I, yeah, I, yeah. I do think that he does deserve to be held responsible for some of the things that were done under the coalition of the parliament, particularly Certainly, yeah. the privatisation of Royal Mail, which is what his, his department is responsible for. Mm, yeah, he was business secretary. Yeah, so he, he is essentially the, the minister, if you like, who privatised Royal Mail. I don't think he wanted to, but the fact mm. remains that he did. So I think that will probably come back to bite him. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely. If they do try and win back any of those Lib Dem, Labour Lib Dem margins, I think they're going to really struggle with that. <laughs> but I think um, he did a debate at our university debating society uh, uh, about a year ago now, um, and it was about: Do you think uh, I can't remember the exact wording of the question, but the gist of it was: uh, Do you think that anti-austerity has? Sorry, do do you think that austerity has been detrimental to Britain or something? And he was arguing that it has. He was on the anti-austerity side of that argument. So, you know, and I, I, I can't see that he would agree to do that if he wasn't at least partly uh, uh, actually of that opinion. Oh, yeah, I, I definitely think he is of that opinion privately. I, I, I guess we would have some influence in the government. I think the government would have went along with it. 
regardless. Yeah, I'd agree with that. This is a long-running thing with the Lib Dems, actually, because uh, there's a Tony Benn quote about what he was asked, what do you think of the Lib Dems? And he said something along the lines of, they're well-meaning people who don't have the courage of their convictions when it comes down to it, or something like that. I think that is, unfortunately, often the case. Although, one thing that they have had the courage of their convictions on is Brexit uh, and their resolute opposition to it. Um, yeah. To the point where I think it really hurt their general election campaign. Um, and they seem to be carrying on with it, though, even after the but, general yeah, election they, campaign. Yeah, they have a drop point, which is to their credit, I think. And, you know, Corbyn gets a lot of, a lot of stick for getting his drop point. I don't quite realise that he always has got really stick. And there are good yeah, reasons yeah. to be. Uh, he's right to be, yeah. <laughs> but... You do have to, you do have to appreciate, I think, the tenacity of the Lib Dems. Yeah, that's reasonable. I think. I think this is my main problem with Brexit overall: is that it takes away from every other issue too much. I think, because it, it is an extremely important thing, and now that we're doing it, it's right that there's so much focus on it. But what's ultimately going to come out of it is going to be that we're going to be a developed Western European country that has a very close relationship with the EU and is still, you know, pretty much the same place on the world stage globally and have the same relationship to global capitalism. It's not going to actually change anything fundamental. It's really important that we get the details right, but there isn't going to be any fundamental shift in the way that everything around here is working. And there is the the hope and the possibility that actually the one, one of the fundamentals is that, that it could change is in fact opening up more capacity for the UK government to intervene in the economy, which under yes, yeah, yeah. EU legislation is currently quite difficult. The French ignore it mostly, but we tend to play by the rules yeah. um, and and not sort of subsidise industries and, and support um, sectors in the economy, which without that law in place and with a, a left-wing government, it does give us more scope to mitigate the yeah, yeah, yeah. It gives you a sort of... Leaving the EU doesn't make us independent of the EU, but it does give us a kind of semi-independence. It does give us a bit more control. Yeah. We just need to elect a government to capitalise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is... At least, at least that's what that's what we have to be aiming for. Now that we are leaving the EU, we need to be looking to make the best of it in that exact way. There is one thing. He gave uh, Vince this uh, game an interview to the States the other day, and most of it's fairly middle of the road, exactly the kind of thing you'd expect him to say. Um, then they come to a bit near the end where they talk about they talk about the fact that some people in the Lib Dems and also in the media thought that it was time to have a younger Lib Dem. Um, lots of them wanted Joe Swinson, um, who would then, of course, also be the first female leader. Um, mm. There is this idea that Vince Cable may kind of done this deal with after the party was basically more experienced, which I actually think is a very good idea. Because I think yeah, yeah, that's very reasonable. And it, it makes sense, but also that she is a bit um, lacking experience in a top level position. So, yeah, I think that's actually quite a good idea. But he insists that isn't the case, and he's not going to be looking for anything, which is fine. Of course, he has to say that. But then yeah, he, yeah, says but... he says, gender isn't an issue oh, anymore, yeah. rightly so. Thanks to Obama, race isn't really an issue either, at least we hope not. And it shouldn't be either. It should be who you are and what you have to say. Now, I certainly agree that it should be who you are and what you have to say, and that gender, race, age, these things don't really matter. However, to say they aren't an issue anymore, whilst it might just be a slip of the tongue, I think actually speaks a little bit to a more underlying problem with certain liberals that yeah. they think that because we have formal equality of gender in place, at least mostly in this country, and because we have a sort of increasing representation for women and minorities in the media, which is a good thing, it doesn't make them far enough, I think a lot of liberals are kind of wrestling with their roles a bit and thinking that the hard work's been done. And that mm. worries me because it really, really hasn't. And Yes, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I, I, I hope this is just a slip of the tongue. He doesn't really think that. I would really like to believe that. And I think it's quite probable. But 
it also it, the fact that he can even say that I think belies a, a subconscious complacency, which I think is worrying. We need to kind of do away with that because gender mm. is still an issue, race especially is still an issue, uh, and and even age is an issue, and we should fight on those issues because the left is stronger on those issues than we were. We have better solutions to gender and racial equality, not necessarily the perfect ones because we're developing better ones all the time, and that's the correct thing to do, but we have better ones than the Tories, and we, we should stand on those issues, we shouldn't try and depoliticise those things, like we were talking about with the Bremen fire the other week. Mm. We shouldn't depoliticise these issues, because they are political, and we're better on them than yeah. the Tories. Significantly. I, I absolutely agree with you on all of those points. <laughs> and so it's really important to bring that up. Yeah. I just, I just, I was reading it earlier, and it, and it, and it irked me and slightly worried me, so I wanted to mention it. And part of me wonders... Is that to do with, does that go, is that a feature of the whole Lib Dem thing, of having, being sort of basically on the money on most issues, but but never following it through in, in a way that you actually need to solve the issue? I think it could be. And that's why, although I'm pleased that they haven't been completely wiped out, because we do still have this small group of parliament that can kind of tip the balance to the left without... Labour having to give up too much of their own principles, which hmm. is beneficial for the left as a whole. I don't think we can rely on them. I mean, yeah, the yeah. Tories once, and I don't think they'd like us to do it again because they got burned too badly. But we have to remember hmm. that this is the party that was willing to go into coalition with the Conservatives. And yeah. I don't think we should be willing to do that. And that in withdrawing support for the Callaghan government opened the way for Thatcher. Indeed. Yes, and especially the SDP ones, because if he's a former SDP person, yes. then they are the group of people on the right of the Labour Party who broke away the last time Labour had a very left-wing leader, and in so doing gave Margaret Thatcher her biggest majority. Not even particularly. I mean, but, you know, he was left No, not really. But, you know, Tony Benn, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Best Prime Minister we never had. Gonna get bleary eyed now. Anyway, servants probable an excellent then leader, so we'll keep you posted. But that seems to be the way to be going. Yes, I don't support the Lib Dems, but they're nice to have around. And if it, you're in a Tory Lib Dem march, you can buy Vince Lib Dem because oh I'd yes, much rather have Vince Cable than Chris Matthews. Yeah, and but as a, there's also another thing of like having another centre left party outside of Labour is always a good thing, because Labour occasionally do a blare, and then you need something to fall back on. Uh, like in 2005, really yes, yeah, that would be... But, but, um, if, yes, yeah. In 2005, after the Iraq War, if you didn't like the Iraq War, who would you who would you vote for? Well, you'd have to vote for the Lib Dems, because they're the only party that opposed it. Of course, I don't have Charles Kennedy. Just... Oh, yeah, yeah. Miss him too, but... Hmm. <laughs> a man of integrity would be missing. Yeah. But hey, we've got Corbyn. And we do, yes. Vince is, is, is in rebellion, so. Yeah, yeah. They will be needed to tackle emerging Boris Johnson. <sighs> yes. And on that bombshell. Uh, Shall we turn to Armorica? Oh, yes, yes. Or the wide lands of Armorica. Because if they're going to mispronounce our words, then I will mispronounce theirs. <laughs> Uh, so that'll learn them. The United States of America has—I don't know if you've heard about this, David—but they—they've elected this bloke called Donald, and he's a bit of a disaster. All things. Oh really? Things yeah. No. yeah. Oh, I thought he sounded nice. Well, I mean, you—you've been reading Breitbart again, haven't you? I keep telling you off. <laughs> I keep telling you off, but you won't listen. And um, David does not read Breitbart. Well, no, I don't know. Quite concerned. Um, so anyway, yeah. So. At the beginning of the year, you may remember, US President Donald Trump, one of the first things he did as president was to bring in a travel ban uh, for residents of six Muslim-majority countries. That was Iran, Libya, Syria, Somalia, Sudan, and the Yemen. So he was blocking any immigration from those countries to the United States. He was also cancelling substantially the US refugee program. Now, that 
bill was hugely protested against, massive protests all over America, particularly in New York, um, but really all over the country, and solidarity protests in the UK and Australia, Canada, other places as well. It was really quite stirring, I thought, to see, very inspiring. Um, and the courts basically closed the band down, they postponed it. It has now been partially reinstated. So the mm. Supreme Court uh, upheld the ruling of the lower court that part of the ban should be put back in place until October when they'll have a proper full hearing and then decide on the ban's fate finally. Now, so this means that again, from 8pm Washington time on Thursday, uh, people from Iran, Libya, Syria, Somalia, Sudan and Yemen have been unable to immigrate or travel to the United States except that the court did impose a restriction on the ban which is that people with what they call a bona fide relationship with someone or a person or an organization already in the United States would be allowed to travel. So this was defined as including parents, spouses, fiancés, children, son or daughters-in-law, or siblings, including step and half-siblings, and also uh, a, a business or an educational tie to the United States that they can prove, and that has not been put in place specifically for the purposes of evading the ban, so basically it predates the ban. So this is the situation. Um, it's been challenged by a court in Hawaii, who were one of the courts that um, challenged it first time round. Thoughts? Well, an effect that I think might happen um, uh, out of the end of this ban, because because of the way that it's it's been it's been introduced, struck down, had to come back in partial form, and that the legal arguments over it are having to be on the specifics of the details of it, and then when it gets reinstated, it has to be some of the specific details of the ban. That's making the whole American public conversation have to go through this particular policy in quite a lot of detail that they don't normally have to go through a policy in that level of detail. And because of the nature of the policy, which is about banning Muslims from being able to travel, and so the specifics are it about it, um, the specifics of the bill are all about uh, the nature of the individual people. American society is having to think about ordinary Muslims as if they're normal human beings with families and whatever in a way on a scale and in a way that they've never really had to before so I think that the the whole process of having the news cycle be constantly on this and talking about uh, uh, Muslims that live and work in America or have family in America and are already sort of like they're not Americans but they are like real people in the way that um, that, um, that Americans think about their neighbors and whatever could have a positive effect on the the nuance with which Americans treat the idea of a Muslim. It's kind of worrying that it's needed. But yeah, yeah, very Considering much so. Muslims as if they're actual people is somehow a novel idea, mm -hmm. but unfortunately to significant sections of not just the American, but also the British public, that does seem to be kind of a weird thought. There are parts of America that do have already significant Muslim populations. Yeah, and so there, they will already have been interacting with these people um, and realising that they're just normal people like everyone else. Uh, it's particularly in um, southern Michigan and northern New Jersey, I think, for some reason. There's just real centres of Muslim population in America. Um, but, but throughout the rest of America, they have very few Muslims in comparison to what we have in Europe. So it's entirely possible that most Americans won't have met a Muslim ever before. Um, but being made to consider them as real people is, um, uh, I think, could make it much more difficult to demonise them in a way that's been done quite a lot over the last few decades. I certainly hope that's the case. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a positive that I try to, to find in a not very nice story. But yeah, I mean, it is as a as a piece of news, it is quite just awful. I thought that one of one hmm. of the I thought that when this ban was kind of struck down the first time around and a huge mobilisation of the American people against it in that first attempt to push it through, 
I thought that would see it off. I, I, I thought that Trump and particularly the rest of the Republican leadership would look at that and think, okay, if we try and hammer this home, we are going to lose large sections of the public and we're not going to be able to get anything else through and it's just not worth a bother. I think I mm. overestimated their level of analysis of of the popular opinion because between this and the healthcare bill they're still trying to push through, which is massively unpopular, far more unpopular than Obamacare was, and that was pretty unpopular at the time, although it's quite popular now. Hmm. Between those two, the ban and the, and the healthcare bill, I I think that I mean, Trump's already the most unpopular president at this point is in presidency ever. I think he is very shortly going to find himself the most unpopular US president ever. And I don't think that they're going to be able to get anything through the rest of this Congress, which is great. Yeah, I yeah. think there's a decent chance the Democrats will take it back, take back Congress at the midterms, which is good, and that Trump's going to be a one-term president. That's that's the kind of positive I tease out of it. But in the meantime, just a horrific burden to place on people who are just, in many cases, just trying to come and visit a country. Many people are also. We should um, mention the refugee situation. The refugee yeah, yeah, section has been fully upheld, pretty much, unless they can also one of those exemptions. And of course, the refugees, far fewer of them are going to be able to meet those exemptions than for mm. the general population. And also, it's been ruled that a relationship with an existing refugee resettlement agency doesn't count as a bona fide relationship, which is a bizarre because why not? And be mm. really basically going to massively, massively affect the thousands of refugees that are supposed to be coming in and who have already been vetted. There are thousands of refugees who had already accepted um, under o- of Obama, even, um, I believe, I think about 70,000 uh, Obama said he'd take. A decent proportion of these, I think about 14,000 at the moment, have already been vetted and are awaiting resettlement, many of whom have already basically, the paperwork's been done, they're just waiting for someone to actually pick them up and move them from where they are, which is mostly Syria or East Africa, to the US for resettlement. And now they've been told they can't. When they've gone through Hmm. all the vetting procedures, they've gone through months if not years of of torture and and living in terrible conditions, wait with this glimmer of hope, keeping them going, and now it's been snatched away by Hmm. this orange ogre of a man who's squatting in the White House. They didn't even win the election! Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one even wanted him in the first place. I don't like Hillary Clinton, but for goodness sake. (laughs) If you get, what was it, three million more votes than the other guy, you should become president. You really should. Yeah. Yeah, this... the entire basis of, of not wanting to have refugees as well is false as well, because the process of bringing in refugees and then trying to settle them in and whatever, there's there's a limit to how quickly you can do that. But once you've got the refugees into your country and they're settled in, they tend to be extremely valuable to the country that they've moved to, because essentially your country has saved their lives. So they are desperate to repay that that um that. Uh, that extraordinary help that they've been given and so they become extremely productive citizens who are, are the backbone of your future society this is exactly what happened in, you can ask people um, who are on in the immediate western side of the old iron curtain as soon as that came down they were flooded with refugees from the former eastern Bloc. but the the people from the, them and their descendants <clears throat> have become the cornerstone of their economy and their society very often and indeed chancellor of germany Yes, yes. Precisely. Sort of segues, uh, leaving the. And I, I, I agree again very much with what you just said. But that sort of segues us quite neatly into a slightly nicer story, although one with a bit of a sting in the tail. Yes. Which is that the German Reichstag, the, their parliament. Uh, b- b- Bundestag. Bundestag, is it now? Yes. 
Yeah, I think they got rid of Reichstag after the war. Still called the Reichstag building. I've seen it. Nope, you're right. Oh, the the building that the old Reichstag was in is still called the Reichstag, but the Bundestag, which is their new parliament, doesn't meet there. I think. No, it is. It is the building is still called the Reichstag. They do meet. Oh there, right, okay, but the, fair enough. The parliament is called the Bundestag. That is stupid. right. That's fair enough. But I can. I, can, I think Stag just means parliament. Yes, but I, Reich means like nation or empire. Bundes is people. Bundes means land, doesn't it? Bundes is people. Oh, people is it? Okay. Right, right is land. But I, yeah, I can. I, 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 I apologise. I don't know. No, it's fair it's enough. I, I'm a historian. All of my, <laughs> all of my knowledge of Germany sort of ends at about 1989, <laughs> and mostly in 45. <laughs> let's be honest. Um. Okay, so fine. But the German Bundestag, then, which is sounding fucking Reichstag building, has yeah. <laughs> voted to legalise same-sex marriage. Uh, Hooray! Yes, indeed. Hooray. Uh, previously, civil partnerships were allowed, uh, so they have had that for some time, but now full equal marriage is going to be implemented in Germany. I'm not sure exactly when, but the bill bill's been passed. Um, so that's great. Fantastic news. Um, mm. I'm partly surprised that it took this long. I just sort of assumed that Germany already had it. Yeah, so did I actually. Um, I'm yeah. surprised America we were ahead beat of them Germany. to it. That seems odd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Germany is fairly liberal, especially on LGBT issues. Yeah. But I, I suppose you have to remember that Angela Merkel's party, the CDU, the Christian Democratic Union, have been in power for quite some time, and they yes. are as the name suggests, and they're specifically a Christian right party. Unlike, they didn't really have a David Cameron figure that, that slightly, who at least for a little bit was kind of a bit um, ripping up some of the old Tory uh, mm. traditionalisms, most of which didn't come to anything when they actually got in, but um, the vote to bring in equal marriage actually was one of the things that did survive from his yes. hug a husky days. And, mm. and the CDU never had that. They had Merkel instead, who although she allowed a free vote on the issue, did in fact vote against it, um, citing her kind of Christian faith as essentially her reason. Um, so... I always think that about Christians, because it's, it's become a major thing. Very often, the only time that Christianity directly enters the political sphere is on the issue of gay marriage. I feel like that massively misses the point of Christianity. Or an abortion, but that's fine. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But yeah, I mean, it, it is rather bizarre. I mean, it's I think it's like one verse in in the Bible. Yeah. Is it Luke or, or I think it's Luke. I don't think it's mentioned in the New Testament at all. Is it? I, I, you, you know the Bible a lot better than I do. I, I can say uh, to you, but it's, I don't know. I don't know where it is. But it's but... one line in the Bible anyway that, that yeah, basically yeah. says that you, you can't be gay. And yeah, there's there's a list of things that you're not allowed to do. And one of them is. Wear different clothes that are made of different that's, fabrics that's from each other. Thing. Cut your hair. Thou shalt not marry. And eat shellfish. Thou shalt not uh, wear fibres and be different kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, eat shellfish. Yeah. That's one. And be a homosexual. For some reason, one of them has really stuck around. It's... Yeah. Yeah. In a kind of horrible and malicious way. Yeah, 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 in a way that just causes far more misery than the others would, I think. No one really likes prawns that much, do they? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> a bit of special fried rice sometimes got prawns in it. Yeah, yeah, quite. But, um, yeah, but yes, anyway, so Germany, equal marriage, very good, but Angela Merkel voted against, uh, which kind of damages, I think, her credentials as this kind of liberal hero that some people have kind of made her out to be. And I think... Mm. I think even I was guilty of it a little bit. I was laughing for the week before when I was saying you know, she was kind of like the last, the last sort of slightly sensible person on the international diplomat, diplomatic mm. stage, which I think is true. But I think that fact obscures some of her more conservative ideas. Um, yeah, yeah. And the fact that although she, to her credit, opened the borders of Germany to take on a lot of refugees during the height of the refugee crisis. Um, now has kind of gone back on that and is generally mm. become much more restrictive and sort of re-entered the kind of fortress Europe mentality, 
witch. The, the thing that had that had defined her image on the international stage prior to that was how she treated Greece during the bailout negotiations. And in that, she was seen as being very much of the neoliberal um, ilk. So, yes, I think uh, yeah. you can say Angela Merkel was certainly strongly stable in a way that other <laughs> centre-right politicians... Everything in Germany is strong and stable. Yeah, that's very true, actually. It's just not allowed. Not permitted. Yes. But, um... Not... Very recently, we had um, uh, Pride, and... Quite a lot of people I've heard coming out saying, well, do we really need this anymore? Hasn't, haven't all the battles been won so far? Um, it comes back to the fact that I didn't even realise that in Germany they didn't have equal marriage. So uh, there are... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also I think even, even if once the entire planet has equal marriage and similar liberties for LGBT people, I still think there's still a place for celebration of that aspect of your identity which is what mm-hmm. fundamentally is as well as a political protest which absolutely is as well yeah, yeah. and it's become a bit corporatized and a bit media yeah yeah and even once you have won those rights it's very important to remain organized and visible to defend them properly because even things that we that we thought we had completely got uh, done away with like anti-semitism well, not completely done away with, but sort of like it could never come back in the way that we used to have it. Suddenly it has on the continent. It's really, really scary what's happening. Golden Dawn in Greece. Hmm, hmm. Front National in France. Jobbik and whatever. Jobbik is... I'm not sure. I'm not Hungarian. My co-workers are Hungarian. I should ask them. Ah, right, yes. It might not, yeah, it might not be a brilliant uh, conversation over lunch. And also, there's the very, very small but non-zero possibility she might be a vehement supporter and will have a massive, yeah, yeah. massive argument. Yeah, you don't want to... If you're, if you're I, don't, I don't know, you move to Austria or something and someone asks you, so uh, what, what does BNP stand for? <laughs> well. <laughs> oh, right. Nice conversation to have. Yeah. yeah. Something I noticed um, when um, having a bit of a read about this story is that the um, the inside the inside of the German Parliament, the chamber that they actually sit in, oh, just looks button. rubbish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it just looks rubbish. I must admit, I've not the... been inside. I'm sitting outside. Of it, but... oh, fair enough. It's, it but it, it looks a little bit like the European Parliament building. Yeah, I mean, a lot of sort of new build kind of assembly and parliament buildings do look like that. I mean, I don't really like the inside of the, the Scottish parliament all that much. Yeah, But even yeah. that has a bit of grandeur to it. I suppose it's because we're so used yeah, to the Palace of Westminster, which is obviously that's true, yeah. built in the 1500s and hmm. uh, belonged to Henry VIII before he gave it to them. I mean, I think that the pomp and ceremony surrounding that Spoils us in a way when you look at Parliament. I mean, even the US Congress is brilliant. I mean, it's big. Yeah. It's big, which gives it but a it, certain grandeur, but it's not really yeah. nice looking. But even in comparison to ones like that, uh, the um, the French Parliament, Congress, Holyrood, um, these international parliaments that don't have the kind of history that Westminster does, even in comparison to them, the German Parliament just looked rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> I'll send Angela Merkel a message. Well done, yeah, yeah. Marriage stuff, Put some vote, bunting up, but uh, you know, yeah. putting that to one side, please. <laughs> Lick a paint. A bit yeah, yeah. It looks very nineties. That's what it looks. It, I mean, it probably is. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Right. I imagine they gave it a, uh, a bit of a slap of paint in after reunification. It's probably. The oh, perhaps that's why. Yeah. It probably is the last time that we've done it. Yeah. Uh, Right. Anything more to say? No, yes. So, uh, it it did pass, didn't it? Germany did pass yes, their marriage. It it's just that Angela Merkel didn't vote for it. Yes, uh, and most of her party didn't either. A, yes, was a, a portion of it. But of course, because she's in a grand coalition at the moment, that didn't matter. Because was yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, because her party doesn't have a majority, and her, her and the Bavarian variant of her party between them don't have a majority. Social Union, who are their kind of sister party, but also sort of party. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
the other the only other parties that have seats in the German parliament are the Social Democrats, the Greens and the Left Party. So overall, they're left of centre parties do have a majority. Yes. It's just that they don't form the government. Yeah, because Die Linke didn't want to work with the SDP, I think. Yeah. Which is... um, so that means that on individual pieces of legislation, they can be very liberal, even if their chancellor is from the right of the parliament. Um, don't think so. Running down your notes. Yep. That's that paper for yeah, us. that's everything. Have a paper wrestle. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. That was good. Right. Oh, I'll actually change the page. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's move to our our, there it is. our last story for the week, which is um, another good news story. We'd like to end on a positive note, which is the NHS in England and Wales will now provide abortions to women from Northern Ireland on the same basis as those from Great Britain. Hooray! It's very good. It's a step in the right direction. It's nowhere near enough. Um, having, said, oh, yes, gonna, course, yeah. having said we're going to end on end on a positive note, I am now going to rant a bit. But it's important to remember that this is a huge step in the right direction. Um, we Previously, it was hugely expensive for women from Northern Ireland to, to get abortions because they couldn't get them at home. They can't get them in Ireland, so that means they have to fly or sail to mainland Britain um, and get it done in Liverpool or somewhere like that. And then they have to pay private healthcare providers to do it because the NHS, as a kind of sop to the DUP, um, wouldn't provide women from Northern Ireland with abortion services. That part of the cost is now gone. They still have to travel there, which is not cheap necessarily, um, particularly for working class women. It's all right for middle class, but if you're a working class person in Northern Ireland and you need to get an abortion, it can still be expensive to travel. But yes, it's very good that the NHS is now providing them, but I think it kind of speaks to a slightly wider point that we should remember that this point of <coughs> the same bases as those from Great Britain is key because abortion in this country is not really legal rather it is criminalized but there is a loophole created by the 1967 I think it is abortion act which allows two doctors in consultation with a particular woman who wants to get an abortion to overrule the earlier criminalization it isn't the case that abortion is legal rather that there is a legal way of circumventing criminal prosecution but any other method of achieving an abortion if you don't have two doctors approval is still illegal and of course there are um, restrictions on term limits and things like that sex selective abortion um, which are a different matter but it is important that we recognise that fundamentally Abortion is still a crime in this country, and until that changes, and until all parts of the United Kingdom, indeed the whole world, preferably, but all parts of the United Kingdom have full access to abortion without doctors having to say so, there is no right to for women to control their own bodies, and that right is, other than the right to life, the most fundamental of any right. And before you mm. get all agitated pro-life people, fetuses don't count. <laughs> yeah, there's a certain amount of irony there. there well. <laughs> but yeah, there's my rant. I don't know if you have anything you yes. want to add. Well, this is uh, just, sort of, I basically just entirely agree with everything you've just said. But also, got a bit crackly. just to add, the pun? You've got a bit crackly. Oh, um, is it still bad? Uh, still a little bit, yeah. Okay, um... Oh, right, okay. That's better? Yeah, that's better. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I was just going to add, um, well done Labour on this one, because they managed to force it into the, the Queen's speech against what the Conservatives were originally going to do. Yes, it was Stella Creason. Um, yes. Um, who submitted the amendment, the previous candidate for the deputy leadership, um, who lost to Tom Watson. But yes, she is one of the leading members of that kind of parliamentary feminist caucus I talked about earlier, 
and mm. she's a vociferous campaigner for women's rights. And yeah, we're incredibly well done on on her for, for yeah, yes, right. and for the Labour Party for backing it. Yes, and it's it's kind of shows a um a kind of quite clever thing that Labour can do now in this Parliament is propose bills or amendments to bills that they know that one out of the Conservatives and the DUP will support and that the other one will oppose. Or at least the you know, Liberal Conservatives. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and it also shows that um, the, DUP, the DUP still support the Queen's speech, even though that, that's in it. So they sort of know what their position is, that they are very much a junior partner in this deal with the Conservatives. And so they won't enormously overstep their bounds on to, in, uh, in terms of those specific issues that they have a very, um, uh, that, that are sort of like particular issues for them that they bring up quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is obviously a, a very big thing for them because they are, as a party, they take a pro-life position and they are, of course, founded on extremely conservative Protestant position. So yeah, it is quite significant that they've backed down on this, but also I think as long as they aren't um, made to back down on providing abortions for women actually in Northern Ireland, they're kind of not happy, but they'll accept it. And I think that very <clears throat> fact goes to show you how important it is that we must push that through at all costs because if the DUP are happy for this to go through it demonstrates that it's not enough hmm. you know we will not have succeeded in extending equal rights to women in Northern Ireland and to LGBT people for that matter and all kinds of other things until the DUP are spitting fire at that point we might have done it because they yeah, will yeah. be if we've achieved what we yeah. So all, all the focus on this deal has been about how um, the DUP will be dragging the Conservatives in an even more unpleasant direction. Um, but it's entirely possible that because they're both in this deal, that having the Conservatives be having a deal with the DUP might help LGBT and women's issues in Northern Ireland. And this seems to be the beginnings of that kind of that small effect that might be a positive to come out of this parliament. I've said this a lot this episode, but I hope that's the case. I really yeah, do. yeah. <laughs> yeah, trying to be positive. Yes, yeah. yes positivity is good. Yes, it's going to be okay. It might not, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, any other business, David? I don't believe so. Fantastic. Well, there's going to be no episode next week. Because I, yes. like David a few weeks ago, and this is a supreme irony, I'm on a boat. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> I've yes, gone away with it. I'm, I'm, I'm going off on a boat because I, I, um, I... You need it yeah. after these few weeks. Yes, it's, been, it's, 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 been, it's been busy. Uh, working hard and suffering. Suffering the political nonsense. <laughs> so yes. <laughs> I am, I am, I am leaving for, for sunny Athens. Oh, oh, dear. So I shall be, I shall be exploring the Parthenon. I shall be, also, we are going to Olympia to have a gander at the, the site of the Olympic Games. And of course, also, we're going to, we're going to look at Delphi, uh, to consult with the, the oracle of the great god Apollo on exactly uh -huh. how we can get Theresa May out of Amersfoort. Um, so I'll keep everyone updated on that. Um, it might take a while to get back to me. I don't think he's got a mobile phone. But, uh, <laughs> you know what these 3,000 year old Greek gods are, are, are like. They're just, you can't trust them. They're not reliable. They're not reliable. They do all their communication through Oracle and through, like, Mirror. It's stupid. Stuck in the past, they are. Well, you could even say that. You could. It's like D. <laughs> Yes, the Delphi I think, I think there's a decent argument to say that, particularly on that LGBT Exactly rights, the same as the DUP. Yeah. But on, particularly on LGBT rights, the, the Greek gods are considerably more progressive than the oh, DUP. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thank you, comrades, for your time and attention. You've been listening to Revolutionary Dispatches. Viva la Revolution!